On this week's Check the Pantry from the studios of KBBI in Homer, Alaska, we're celebrating the first signs of spring with a classic springtime food, ham. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest this week is Terry Robel, and it's time to Check the Pantry. is, as all right-thinking people know, better than bacon. The great dry-cured hams, Iberico, Prosciutto, Virginia country ham, are some of the finest foods in the world. But ham is one of the least descriptive names of any food out there. It covers everything from the watery, chopped and pressed stuff from random commodity pork that comes prepackaged at the grocery store to the most intensely flavored, years-old hams made from specific pigs, fed specific diets in specific regions and slice tissue thin just before they're given to you. You're in the grocery store, in the ham section. There's a bewildering array of hams and ham-shaped objects in front of you. And what does it all mean? If the label of the product in front of you reads ham and only ham with no additional descriptive words, then by USDA regulation, you're looking at a cured hind leg of pork that is at least 20.5% protein. There are two ways of curing ham, dry and wet. Dry curing is done with salt alone. The actual method depends on where the ham is being produced and the end goal. Dry cured hams may or may not be smoked. German, English, and American dry cured hams typically are, while Italian, French, and Spanish examples are usually not. Dry curing takes a long time and requires considerable care, but it results in a ham that is intensely flavored and is the method used to produce the most famous hams in the world. The vast majority of hams are wet-cured using brine. The whole cuts can simply be submerged in the brine or, as is far more common, they can be injected with it. Injection speeds up the process of curing considerably. Cheap hams often contain additives that help retain water as well. Water is cheaper than meat, so if you're making your hams to hit a low price point, the more water you can squeeze into the package, the better. There are a few labeling requirements that can help sort the bland from the tasty, however. At the low end of the scale are the canned hams, the pressed or formed hams, and ham and water product. Incidentally, there are some perfectly fine canned and pressed hams out there, but the majority of these are typically washed out tasting, mostly just sweet and salty with a spongy quality. Ham and water product means that you are looking at a cured pork leg with less than 17% protein and up to 25% added ingredients, including water, various salts, and other additives, most of which are either preservatives or used to retain water to keep a moist mouthfeel. The next step up the ham ladder is ham water added. This indicates a leg of pork containing at least 17% protein and no more than 10% added brine solution. I find these to be typically bland as well, but at least they're getting into the ballpark of something that's recognizably ham. 
Probably the most common type of ham at the supermarket, especially the half or whole hams, is ham with natural juices. The ham in this case is at least 18.5% protein, which doesn't sound like a lot more than ham water added, but in fact it does make quite a difference. These hams are usually not deeply flavored, but the texture is less like a sponge and they taste much better than the lower tiers. Then there's the aforementioned ham, which at its most basic is 20.5% protein, cured pork leg, and which can be somewhat difficult to find, at least in Alaskan groceries. Beyond that, you start getting into country ham and all the specific regional hams from around the world. Many of them, like prosciutto di Parma, York ham, or jamon iberico, are governed by stringent regulations in their producing countries, similar to the appellation system in wine. U.S. labeling laws do not necessarily follow the same regulations or honor the same terms, though, so the more expensive your ham gets, the more you've got to do your own homework. Any of these labeling categories can be bone-in or boneless, spiral-sliced or whole, smoked or unsmoked, cured with or without sugar or honey or some other flavoring agent, and all sorts of other permutations. The USDA maintains a webpage explaining every possible combination of words on a ham label, which is very interesting reading if you're a food nerd. Later in the show, I'll be making tasso, which is a smoked Cajun ham, but I better not let the USDA catch me saying that. I make my tasso with pork shoulder, and in order to call something ham, it has to be made from the hind leg. Nothing else will do. Capicola, the famous spiced ham of Italian delis, is likewise not actually ham, according to the USDA. And then there's the fresh ham, which is just an uncured raw leg of pork that you roast like any other large cut. Or you can take a crack at curing it yourself. So the words on your ham label mean something. They aren't just marketing hype. Clear, accurate labels are one of the best ways to help you choose between products you might not know very much about. And for now, for ham at least, we've got them. My name is Jeff Lockwood. This is Check the Pantry. I am here with the legendary Terry Robel. Good morning. And we're here to talk about one of my favorite foods, ham. And mine too. I think most people who do not have particularly objections to eating pork enjoy ham. I love ham. So you had a question when you walked in, and I'm glad that you asked me because it was actually one of the first things I wanted to talk about. And what question was that? My question was why is ham prepared in the springtime traditionally for Easter dinner? And that is an excellent question. And as far as I am aware, and if this is not the correct answer, it sure sounds like it could be. (laughs) So we're going to go for it. Typically, a ham would be cured over the winter. So you slaughter your pig in, say, October, November. By the next March or April, it's been sitting in salt or in a brine for a good six months and your ham's ready to go and so it's an obvious an obvious sort of uh winter celebrate or a springtime celebration because now you know this is probably some of the last the last meat from your pig that you've had i'll go with that because it goes so well with uh like peas and asparagus and all these other springtime vegetables and later on you are going to make something involving peas and uh, asparagus and ham love it so when you're doing a ham do you glaze it or do you just do it unglazed? Just depends. 
I like to do an unglaze, but I like to do a glaze. What, what kind I, of a glaze do you use? Well, sometimes I just take a real basic pineapple juice and brown sugar um, glaze. And sometimes I make a special glaze with raisins and lemon and pineapple juice and sugar and cinnamon. Just depends. And how, how do you how long do you cook your hams? Because we were talking about this the other day that a lot of people are somewhat confused because the vast majority of hams are, in fact, fully cooked. They are fully cooked. So you just want to warm them up. And the secret is not to dry them out. Yeah. Because you're thinking you have to cook them for a long time because you have a piece of raw meat and you don't. Yep. So how long so, would do you do you have a per minute per pound or do you have You know, a, I, I don't. Um, it just... It, like I said, it just depends on how big it is. Right. And you're just heating it up. Do you do it in, what, 350 oven? Or 325, do you like to go 325, 350. Now, here's the question. Do you, do you buy hams with skins on? And then at the <gasps> end, do you, do you... Score them? Do you blast it with a high heat yes. so it gets all puffy and crackling? Yes. Yeah. If I can, I do. Oh, my gosh. Those are wonderful. <laughs> yeah, you're making me hungry. I'm I know. Gonna, <laughs> they're okay, hard. show's over. We're going to go get some food. We are absolutely doing that. <laughs> um this is this is for for cured hams, but do you ever make leg of pork fresh hams? Have you ever done those? I have, and but the fresh hams, the, those those you have to cook. Yeah, those are those are like a pork roast, and mm-hmm. I actually I really encourage mm-hmm. people if they see them in the store to get them because mm-hmm. the butchers always complain to me, man, we put these things out and they're great, but nobody ever buys them because they don't know what to do they with them. Don't know what they are, yeah. and you know it's exactly like making a pork roast. It is. You kind of taste like a pork roast. It is a pork roast. I know. I love pork. Or you can cure it. And curing ham, I would love to talk about it in depth on the show, but mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, it's it's a pretty involved process, and there are a lot of different variables. You know, the amount of salt that you use is is important. Getting the salt down at the bone, because a lot of people, when they try to make pour, uh, try to make ham on their own, they get what's called bone sour. And doesn't that sound delicious? Ew, it, <laughs> tell me about that. So bone sour is... Is if you if you only salt the outside of your ham, or if you only brine the outside of your ham, or you only dry salt it, uh, oh right, then the stuff on the outside is salted, you know, and the salt begins to penetrate to the inside of the meat, but the bone itself is porous, so air can actually get inside the meat through the bone slowly, and that will encourage bacteria, bacteria. growth. So typically, like if you are gonna if you are gonna try to cure uh, a ham on your own. You want to insert long needles or long mm-hmm. blades of a knife in around the bone and dump some of your salt in there because mm. that helps the, the meat around the bone get salty enough, quickly enough that it fights off any, uh, any bacterial contamination. That was a great hint. The, the other fisherman has brined some fresh hams and smoked them, and they have been some of the best I've ever had had but he's never had that happen i don't know his process but if you're interested in doing it it's worth taking a pretty deep dive into because you know particularly for brining ham the amount of salt that you add is hugely important because it affects the speed of the brine if you if you have a really heavily salted brine it means that your ham gets gets done quicker but it also means if you leave it in the brine too long then your ham becomes inedible right or you can do what they call equilibrium brining where they uh you put the, the percentage of salt in your brine that you want to go into the meat and you let that sit, which it's impossible to oversalt, but it also takes way longer. Got it. So 
salting, the salting of ham is probably maybe the most, outside of salami, I think it's probably the most technical um, of the meat curing processes. And so if you're going to get into it, if you're going to try it, I highly, highly recommend doing quite a bit of research. Got it. In the meantime, I'll leave it to the experts. Eternity was once defined as two people in a ham, and cooking a whole ham is certainly not something that happens often outside of large gatherings. Now, there's a lot of small format hams out there, though, and one of them is the Cajun delicacy called tasso. I wanted to make jambalaya, and it's impossible to find tasso in Alaska stores, so I had to make my own. One of these days, we're going to talk about knife sharpening. Not today. Today, today we're going to talk about tasso. And tasso is a smoked Cajun ham. It's really heavily smoked. It's really pretty dry. It's used mostly as a seasoning. You'll put it in like a jambalaya, which is what we're going to do with it. We're going to put it in a jambalaya. Uh, you can put it in gumbos and, you know, in whatever, basically. Anything that needs like a smoky pork flavor. You can find it as like a whole pork shoulder. It's usually pork shoulder. Um, sometimes they'll use other pieces, but typically it's pork shoulder because it's nice if it has a little bit of fat in it too. You can find it as a whole pork shoulder, but it seem, it's always seemed to me like anyway that it's been more common down there in smaller pieces and strips. And the nice thing about that is that it allows you to make it really quick. It takes like two, three days to, to uh, cure it. And it takes a little bit of time to smoke it. As you can see, this is my artisanal plastic wrap, as you can hear. So I have a regular old pork butt and all I'm gonna do with it, first I'm gonna bone it out. Now I have a little chunk of bone and that I'm going to set aside and I'm going to use it for stock. And all I'm going to do now is cut this into more or less random chunks. Strips are slightly preferable, uh, not very thick, maybe an inch tops. Keep them thin so that they cure relatively quickly. Like I say, this is, this is not something that we're going to cure for a long time. This isn't a major production. like. You know, a full cut, a full sized um, ham would be if you used like a full cut. This, this is one of those quick and dirty charcuterie products that French derived cooking has a lot of. It's a, it's a fast way to turn over something that, that will nonetheless keep for a long time and also has a lot of flavor so that you can use just a little bit of it and a little bit of meat will go a very long way going to bust out the most important tool aside from a knife in a butcher charcutier sausage making meat processing capacity which is the digital scale so that is 1700 grams of trimmed sliced pork shoulder I've left on all the fat that it came with you know this is supermarket pork so it's not they don't give you the huge fat cap if they did if it, if it was a it was you know one of my pigs or a pig that I got from like a local person. I would cut, I would trim off most of that fat. But this is a supermarket pig, so there's only like a quarter inch of it. All right, so I've got 1,700 grams of trimmed pork shoulder here, and the ratio of salt to pork shoulder is 1.8 percent 
I'm also adding 0.25% of cure number one. Cure number one is mostly salt, like 98 something percent salt with a little tiny bit of sodium nitrite. And it's that that A, gives the Tasso its pink color when it's cooked, and it gives it some somewhat of a hammy flavor. Um, sodium nitrite, it's, it's not something that's easy to describe the way that it tastes, but the way that it usually gets described is hammy because it gives meat that cured kind of flavor to it. In this case, we're only using it for flavor and color because this is not ideal circumstances for bacteria to thrive in. It's not an anaerobic environment. So this isn't particularly, this isn't a dangerous thing. I'm not going to go into sodium nitrite in this particular episode and the pros and cons of it or supposed cons of it. So if you're dead set against it, I'm not going to argue with it with you about it right here. It's not 100% necessary for this recipe. There are recipes for which it is 100% necessary. And for those, like if you're smoking sausage, you need to use nitrite. And then the rest of this uh, is really just some, I call it, I, I call this particular spice blend Cajun pepper. Um, it's just a mix of black pepper, white pepper, cayenne pepper, and red pepper flakes. And that's at about 1% particularly with the cayenne, it gives it a nice sort of kick to it. Um, it's not crazy spicy because also consider like this is going into stuff that also has other spices added to it. So, you know, it's better for everything to be a little dialed back. And then once you put them all together into the mix, then they complement each other as opposed to like trying to make this stuff like, whoa, you know, and like flame shooting out of your mouth and out of your smoke, out of your eardrums. It's going to be, it's also going to be super, super smoky. So it's going to get a lot of its flavor from the smoke. And that's all we're looking for. This is a pretty simple thing. Um, you can add garlic powder if you want. Some people add sugar. A lot of these kind of things are, the seasonings themselves are pretty variable. The important thing is the amount of salt. And 1.8%, it's actually, it's very low for a ham. Mostly because this is intended to be consumed fresh and it's not... You don't need more salt for technical reasons like you do with bacon or uh, long, full, dry-cooked or uh, dry-cured ham, where you need a lot of salt because you need it. You need it to happen fairly quickly. Um, and if you just used a little bit of salt, then it would take longer, and it would also offer more opportunity for bacteria to grow. Although, again, with whole muscle cuts, the bacteria aren't as much of a problem as they as they are when you start to grind things up and intermingle the outside and the inside surfaces of meats and then put them into an anaerobic environment. Hams, bacons, stuff like that, usually those will have a much higher percentage of salt than something like this, which is a pretty quick uh, product that's designed to be con either consumed um, really quickly or put into long-term storage, like you know freezing or whatever. So that's what this is. This is not really a storage product. So I got 1,700 grams of pork shoulder. Bust out my handy dandy calculator. Times 1.8% equals. So 31 grams of plain old salt. And just over four grams 
sodium nitrite, cure number one, prog powder number one, instacure number one. It goes by all those different names. And that's like quarter of a teaspoon, not even. Less than that, I think. And I'm just gonna grind this black and white pepper fresh. Since I have my pepper grinder, I'm just gonna grind a bunch of it. Ordinarily, this is a really small quantity, so if, if this was an actual quantity, I would grind it in a proper spice grinder. But if I was making a lot of this, I would have my pepper mix already pre-made. And some cayenne. Give cayenne a nice shot. And some red pepper flakes. Because I have some garlic powder, and I like garlic powder, I'll finish it up with some garlic powder. Not too much, a couple grams. And all there is to do now is to roll it around in the cure. And now I have a nice little bowl full of tasso. This is gonna cure in the refrigerator for two days. And then I'm gonna take it out and I'm going to smoke it. And then I'll have tasso, which is ready to make jambalaya with. And I assure you it was quite delicious. Now, I think that if we are lucky, we have a very special visitor on the line from Hungary. Skip, are you there? I think I am. Are you there? Yep, we got ya. Anybody home? Yep. Outstanding. Hello, Homer. All right. Hello, everyone. All right, Hi, Skip. That's Terry Robel, by hey the way. There. Hello, Terry. Hi, dear. Hi. So where exactly are you? I am south of Budapest in a, uh, man, I can't seem to move without bumping into a UNESCO site over here. <laughs> um, so we're, we're currently in a little town called EECS, and uh, there's all kinds of weird Roman ruins and such around here, but they also happen to have some food, so we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. But yeah, we're in the south of Hungary, um, not just over the hill from Croatia, actually. Uh huh. But uh, and you were yeah, just telling me beautiful little place. You were just telling me uh, earlier about this amazing ham dish with beans that you were having. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So we the first night we got here, like we were in Budapest for a couple of days, uh, just kind of winding down from Portugal because we had a pretty whirlwind trip there. More on that later into page and we just kind of man let's just go get some food and we were both craving a bowl of just rich hearty soup and i ended up getting a bowl of goulash and charlotte got this it was like a chicken and bean stew and these beans were like the size of 50 cent pieces it was just <laughs> stupid and we finally we hit the local covered market here which has been going for over a hundred we're cruising around. I was like, man, we got to find the beans. Got to find the beans. Finally, we see these little... And they call them lila or purple, like lilac, uh -huh. you know, purple beans. And they're just massive. And so we soaked them overnight. And we said, yeah, let's do these up with some sausage and stuff. And my God, they're like meat. They're just fiendish. 
But awesome. when you throw in like chunks of really nice smoked bacon or ham or sausage, of which there is just a blinding array of here, uh, it, it's just uh, it's just too good. I think we're uh, gonna have to wipe yeah, up some so. of some of the drool from the counter in here. And we're going to yeah. the airport. <laughs> yeah, get a towel. Get a towel. It's it's just crazy. Uh, so what are the yeah, so we what are the hams what are the hams of Hungary like? I know I know they're a big meat eating country. So do they smoke them they or do really they just are. dry them? Most of them are smoked. Um, there's there's no shortage of oak and uh, chestnut here, and so uh, and and the same is true of Portugal for that matter. But. Uh, here, uh, the smoky flavor really is a feature. Uh, we've been to a number of markets just kind of wandering around looking at all the vegetables that are already in season, and it's only the middle of April. Just crazy, like Hungarian peppers, obviously, or oh. peppers. Uh, it's like acres of fresh, ripe, beautiful peppers of every color you can imagine. And wafting throughout these food halls is this overarching smoked fatty pork aroma that just follows you everywhere and you just can't get away from it it's, it's just everywhere you turn it's just crazy I, I, I'm just drooling the whole time I'm here so the address and, of the uh, station is uh, 3913 Ketchumac Way Homer, Alaska <laughs> We have FedEx and UPS. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. So, Skip, um, while, I, while I've got you here, uh, you know, I would yeah. love to know what you uh, recommend to drink with your ham and not just your incredible Hungarian and Portuguese uh, dry-cured yeah. stuff, but plain old American supermarket ham like a lot of us are going to be making in a couple weeks. Sure, sure. Okay, um, like, uh, my family background is all from Southern Virginia, so Smithfield ham. That's yeah, it. Grew up with, I, I had it, it's in my, it's in my DNA. Incredibly salty, uh, even after you've soaked it, it's just flaky, it's, it's kind of like the Parmesan of pig, and, uh, so I'm, I'm already used to that, and those pigs tend to eat a lot of acre, they tend to eat acorns as well as chestnuts so there's there's still that nutty flavor and there are a number of white wines richer white wines uh not oaked i would leave the oak out of it they've already eaten enough acorns you don't need any extra oak <laughs> uh but also um dry rosé oh sparkling or still is fantastic because you get these sort of brighter strawberry red fruits that just seem to work with that that richer nuttier flavor and uh i, I really like my rosé uh even some of the richer versions from um uh, there's there's a region in france that makes rosés out of mourvedre and they are just insanely rich if you closed your eyes you'd swear you were drinking a red wine but anyway more so, on that later so i have uh, to ask yeah. because so i saw all I those richer I have to ask because I saw those amazing pictures of like ancient Madeiras that you were drinking, uh, and I oh, that would go that would go with ham, I think. It's, yeah, it really does. Uh, some of the one that tasting they went back to about eighteen twenty five, oh so almost two hundred years old, and wow. they were still 
because of the the high acid uh, they were still incredibly fresh you just wouldn't believe that was a 200 year old wine and it, it yeah with food it, it just was off the charts uh, um, that is... left your palate totally clean because of that acidity you could eat the fattiest food you could imagine whether it's foie gras or some of these insanely fatty hams and bacons that we get here it's the acid just washes your palate and you're ready for the next Oh, Skip, I, I, we could we could probably keep you around all day, but unfortunately, <laughs> I got to let you get back to right. doing whatever you were doing. At what time is it there? Probably 10, 11? Uh, let's see. It's it's about 9.30. 9.30. Uh, here. All right. Um, uh, and I will be uh, covering a lot of this stuff, not only on my Instagram account, but also on the blog. And the Instagram account is vagabond underscore epicure so if you want to see photos of what we're up to and and hear stories and such we're just getting started awesome so. skip i gotta let you go we've gotta we've gotta carry on here but thank you so much for taking some time out and joining us all the way live from hungary it's been a blast all right bye, you guys. Skip. take care thanks so all much <laughs> bye now now that my tasso is made, I can turn my attention to making jambalaya. Mussels are my favorite shellfish, and I lucked out by running into Weatherly Bates of Glacier Point Oysters in the grocery store, and she just happened to be waiting for a delivery of mussels. So I'm going to be making mussel jambalaya. It's kind of unusual. Not really any mussels in the Gulf of Mexico. But we're in Alaska. And there's mussels here. So all I'm doing with these guys is I am cutting off the beards. I am just cutting them with a knife. You can also pull them, presuming that you're doing it immediately before you cook them. Because uh, pulling the beard kills the mussel. But I'm going to cut these, and I'm actually going to cook them beforehand. This is not something that's totally necessary. You can cook them right in the pot uh, with the rice. The reason I'm going to do it beforehand is pretty simple. It's that I would rather cook the mussels perfectly and add them right at the end of the jambalaya cooking just to heat them through than to cook in the jambalaya too long and overcook and get rubbery. And the other reason is that this way, the mussels will exude a broth and I can use that broth as part of my liquid in cooking the rice. If I try to put them in right at the end of my jambalaya, it's possible that I could wind up with a little excess water in my jambalaya that I wouldn't want. After you've cut off the beards, you can give the mussels a quick rinse uh, just to get any mud or anything off of them. A lot of times they're fairly clean. Any bits of shell or whatever, it'll just I'll just strain out the, the sauce after I've finished cooking them, which is what I'm going to do today. Don't store them in water, and I don't like to rinse them off until I'm just about to cook them because fresh water is bad for mussels. All right. That is my mussels all ready to go. 
All I'm going to do here is put a little tiny bit of uh, white wine in the bottom of a pot, let that simmer a little bit, throw my mussels in there, cover it, cook it for 10 minutes tops, check on them every now and then, and they're going to be, they're going to start to open. And once they're all open, then they're done. Well, now our mussels are cooked. My tasso is smoked. It didn't take much. I uh, threw it in the, uh, I have a little electric smoker. I gave it, I think, three panfuls of smoke. I finished the tasso in the oven, a real low oven, like 250, because otherwise it would have taken all night. A little bit of oil. I have my tasso is, is cut up. So is my trinity, the holy trinity of Cajun cooking, as you may or may not be aware. Onions, celery, bell pepper. Roughly two parts onions to one and a half parts bell pepper to one part celery. I also have some garlic chopped up because garlic is awesome. So I'm gonna start with my tasso. I got a little bit of oil in here because I'm gonna need some. Uh, jambalaya is a rice dish. It's basically what it is, is a rice pilaf. And pilaf, originally I think the Persians sort of invented it, but it's a method of cooking rice where you saute the rice grains first in fat and then you add your water to it, and it has the effect of giving it a fluffier texture. You do the same thing in paella and risotto, which are kind of related to jambalaya. In fact, I sort of, nobody really knows exactly what jambalaya, where it comes from. There's some pretty fanciful etymologies out there. Although I believe, and I've only seen reference to this a couple places, and I believe that there is in fact a Provençal rice dish from the south of France that is either called jambalaya or something like that, but sometimes food history can be really sort of tricky to navigate. Very often you don't know <laughs> what's real and what's not. So I'm gonna add my tasso here. And I like to add this at the beginning, but with a tasso, it's kind of like bacon where it sort of gets better the longer it cooks, you know, the fat renders out of it. Um, it gets real crispy, it gets kind of intense, it loses even more of the water than it already has. And uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with my tasso here and it's gonna permeate everything that comes after it with that smoky pork flavor. Now, like with pretty much everything in South Louisiana, there's two different kinds of jambalaya. There's Creole style, New Orleans jambalaya, and then there's Cajun jambalaya. Creole style New Orleans jambalaya is made with tomatoes and it's red. Cajun jambalaya is not made with tomatoes and once you add all this stuff into it, it tends to turn into a dark brown. Jambalaya rice tends to be pretty blown out and and it's not like, it's not the same variety of rice, although a lot of jambalaya rice, um, and in fact a lot of rice in South Louisiana is medium grain. Um, as opposed to long grain, which is much more common uh, in the rest of the U.S. anyway. We tend to use long grain rice. Uh, but medium grain is pretty common down there, which has, it's a little firmer, it's a little creamier um, texture. But long grain rice is what I'm using here, and it works just fine. And another thing that's pretty unusual about what I'm doing today is it's not super common in South Louisiana to mix uh, smoked pork products and seafood. You know, it's, that's really common in a lot of places, but down there it really isn't. And 
kind of, I think it's because Gulf, tea, Gulf of Mexico seafood tends to be fairly salty and it doesn't really need more salt from a cured pork product. Now, Alaska is a little different because our seafood, like northern seafood in general, tends to be on the sweeter end. And so I find that it really benefits from having um, a, a saltier, deeper, sort of uh, earthier flavor. All right, here go my onions. And you always cook, start with your onions and you let them cook for a little while until they turn translucent. Oh yeah, that's all right smelling. They're nice and translucent, so I am gonna go ahead and add my celery and my bell pepper. I'm not gonna add my garlic just yet. I like to add my garlic right at the end because garlic can get bitter if you cook it too long. There goes my garlic. And I like to add my Tabasco and my Worcestershire straight to my Trinity, because I like to get the flavors of those two things really deep in there. And now I'm gonna add my rice, and I'm gonna do right about three cups or so of rice. So I'm sauteing the rice. That is a pint of water mixed with my muscle juice. I'm just gonna go really simple with my muscle juice, which was about probably a cup, two cups, something in there. Or since I had a pint and a half of rice in my ball jar, I'm going to need three pints of liquid. And there's three. So that's some black pepper and some cayenne. All right, somewhere I have some bay leaves, there they are. So I've got some paprika, I've got a little cayenne pepper, I've got, I just put a little thyme in there, and a bay leaf. Nothing wrong with using one of the seasoning blends. Jambalaya takes a little longer than regular rice to cook. Regular rice is done 18 to 20 minutes. Uh, jambalaya, I pretty much always let go at least 25, sometimes 30. So I'm gonna let this come to a boil, and then I'm gonna put a cover on it and bring it down to a bare, bare simmer, and I'm gonna let it go for probably 25 minutes. Uh, right at the end, I'm gonna throw my picked mussels in there, and then all I gotta do after that is put it in a bowl and top it with green onions and parsley. And it was delicious, and they're all mad at me that I didn't bring any in. We are. <laughs> So Terry, when I was asking you to come up, because you've got the next recipe coming up, and when I, when I asked you for some ideas on what you might like to cook, one of the things that you mentioned, and I almost had you do it, was ham croquettes, because I love them, and they're one of my favorite things to do with leftovers of anything. And so please, please tell me how you make them. Well, I first had them many years ago when I was a little girl, and then when I was lucky enough to go first to Spain, about three years ago, they had them in a tapas bar, and they had that beautiful Spanish jamón in them. So when I taught a little class in Spanish cooking, um, we made the ham coquettes. And so basically you make a very thick bechamel sauce, which is a white sauce. Describe the making of the bechamel uh, for those you, who may not know. You uh, melt butter and add white flour to it and stir it and cook it a little bit to take the raw off the flour. And then you slowly add milk to it and you get a lovely little white sauce. 
And the okay. and the bechamel for this is is not like you know usually a be- bechamel will be like a a little more loose you know right. like a sauce sauce but when you're making right. them for croquettes it's pretty it's pretty solid it's pretty solid and and after you know you get your do we put cheese in it you can i think i put i put cheese in everything you know what I mean? <laughs> and 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 i i realized and then little little tiny chunks of ham to season it and and um, I believe that after I formed them into these cute little logs that we uh, refrigerated them. And then before we fried them, yeah. we rolled them in breadcrumbs. Yeah. Um, and, and they're just, they're simple, but they're good. Yeah, they are. And, and, and they really work well, not just with ham. Although right. I, I really do think they are the best with ham. Like ham croquettes are, they're pretty unreal. Yeah. And, and you don't use... A whole lot of the bechamel. You just use no. enough to sort of bind everything. Yeah, yeah. But you can also you can uh, you can use chicken. You can use leftover pretty much anything. I've made them with mushrooms before. Ooh, sounds great. I love them. But I asked you to come up with a springtime dish that could absorb some of your leftover ham, and you came up with a bright pasta dish using mushrooms and that truly great springtime vegetable, asparagus. And we went up to Station Twelve for Terry to cook it. Okay, let's go. So today we're gonna make a simple and delicious one skillet pasta with ham, mushroom, asparagus, and a lemon creme fresh sauce. Basically, we're using some nice old-fashioned ham here, and it would be a good way to use leftover ham from Easter. The first thing we're gonna do is uh, cut our asparagus into little pieces about an inch long. The next thing we wanna do is we're gonna slice some mushrooms. Love mushrooms. We've got some beautiful cremini's. Okay, so we have our uh, asparagus and our mushrooms and now we're gonna cut our ham. And I don't know, how much ham do we want? Like, I would say just like, Maybe half a cup or so, a cup, about that much. I don't know, whatever you think. You know, we should just treat meat more as a condiment than <laughs> a main course, but I love meat. <laughs> Getting ready here, because once we get going, I think things will go fairly quickly. And this is something you can have on the table in no time at all. Mm, I think that's good. Yeah, we're good. Now, we're going to Get our skillet going. Um, this is all done in one big saute pan or stock pan. Just it's a one pan thing. So let's go over to our stove. There we go. And kind of a medium high heat here. Woo. We have a beautiful knob of butter that we're gonna put in. Don't be skimpy with it. It's gonna flavor your dish. It's gonna flavor your pasta, your vegetables. Nothing's made any worse with butter, let me tell you. Okay, as you can hear our butter. Oops. Got our butter going. We need a spoon to saute a little bit. Here we go. Okay, so first we're gonna put in um, our asparagus. We want probably a medium high heat a little bit. And our mushrooms are going in. And now we'll put our ham in to flavor those mushrooms and that asparagus. 
All right, so we got a little, little bunch of goodness going on in here. A beautiful day for a spring pasta dish. You might want to throw in a little salt and pepper while it's sauteing up. Don't be too generous with the salt. You might not know how salty your ham is. All right, a few grinds of pepper. Oh, I can smell the asparagus already. Smells delish. All right, we want to get a good saute on this and cook these thick guys down a little bit. Get a little brown going on. I'm not gonna cook these real, real long because they go back into the pasta to finish cooking and flavor the pasta. And I've just got basic chicken stock I purchased in the market today because I didn't have time to make any. Um, of course, anytime you can make your own stocks, it's a far, far superior dish that comes from it, as you well know. But not everybody has a lot of time to do that. So there's nothing wrong with buying chicken stock in the market. As our asparagus is cooking here, it's getting a little deeper green. It's, it's really pretty. Okay, so this looks good. I am going to uh, remove our little wonderful things from the pot here. I'm going to turn the burner off, I think. And get this into a bowl. Ooh, that smells really good. That ham is just wonderful. Add the chicken broth. So we have four cups of chicken broth going in here, which is the quart. Looks good. I made my creme fraiche for this yesterday morning. I mixed up um, half sour cream and half cream. And then I put it in a covered dish and set it, tucked it away in the kitchen on the counter. And I have a beautiful, thick creme fraiche. It's very light. It's not real tangy. Um, Jeff makes his with buttermilk, and I think it's more tangy, which would be really good, but I made it this way just because I did. So You do you, Terry. I'm doing Terry. This is always the most exciting part of the cooking show when they're waiting for the water to boil. <laughs> <laughs> Our pasta's getting really close to ready here. It'll be flavorful because it was cooked in the broth rather than in, the, in just water. So this should work just lovely. <laughs> as we wait for the pasta to cook. So our pasta is looking pretty good. It's looking like it's, it's almost done. We're gonna finish this off here. So now we're going to put in our creme fraiche and I have a cup of that. I'm gonna turn this way down here. So we've got the creams in here. Now we're gonna add our ham and mushrooms and asparagus, or what's left of them that we didn't eat while we were making the pasta, because we're both really hungry. And then we're gonna cook it down a little bit, get all those flavors to mingle together and get happy. We're gonna put the lid on, and we're gonna cover it for about four minutes, even though it looks like, we could probably eat that right now. <laughs> it looks really good. Mm. It is really good. So once that is done cooking, we're gonna shave a little pecorino or romano or Parmesan cheese onto it as much as you like. 
And I'm just gonna sprinkle a little lemon in it and a little red pepper and test it for salt and pepper. Well, I'm thinking this is close enough to Colin done. We're just going to finish it off with our cheese and our little bit of lemon. And I'm gonna zest a little lemon in there. Just a little bit, because I like lemon. Not a whole lot. Maybe everybody's not as crazy as lemon. About lemon as I am. Oh my goodness, that smells good. Yum. Okay, enough. And maybe we'll squeeze a little lemon juice in there. Why not brighten it up a little bit? All right, don't put the seeds in. A little lemon, just a little bit. And then, here we go with our cheese. <laughs> this is always my favorite part, the cheese. You can take the girl out of Wisconsin, but you can't take Wisconsin out of the girl. I love cheese. And also remember your hard cheeses like Pecorino and Parmesan and the like, they're, they're kind of salty. So they'll add some nice flavor and nice salt to it. All right, I'm gonna put a little more pepper in. A few grinds of pepper just because. Salt and pepper make everything a little better. A little sprinkle of salt, what the heck? And I think we're gonna put a little more red pepper in it because I was very cautious with it because those in my house that don't like it know immediately it's in there. But I love it. And I think it does a lot to add flavor to good things, especially something with pasta in it because pasta is pretty, pretty basic stuff. So I think we're good. I think we're gonna plate this up, sprinkle a little parsley on it, and uh, enjoy it. Yum, all right. And it was, I assure you, very delicious. My favorite thing about it is it contained my favorite thing that goes with ham, which is mushrooms. I love mushrooms. Ham and mushrooms, like that's my favorite pizza. That's Easily. a good combination. It really is, you know, and like ham and mushroom omelets, also oh, delicious. Those are my favorites. It's all my favorite. I know. The show. The whole show is making me hungry today. I know. It's because <laughs> we're talking about ham. <laughs> so what do you, uh, what, what do you like to serve with your ham? Because I know we've got, we're all going to be making big hams coming up. So like the ham is the centerpiece, but what else you got? Oh, it's just so me to want to make like a scalloped potato dish or an au gratin potato dish and i love to serve ham with really good mustard Ooh, let's not forget about the mustard and the horseradish there, yeah you know oh horseradish with ham huh? yeah oh i've never had the, that yeah i don't know um i'm not real fond of it but i sure like the mustard mustard and ham are just and we can get some really beautiful mustards you know in the states and in europe but do you ever make your own mustard you know i have it's kind of fun i've made it too and i'm always disappointed in it yeah, I, I know. never like my mustard. I'm just saying, I've never really made really amazing mustard, and I think it's something like making wine. You, you got to know what you're doing. I know, and I it's know. weird because I thought I would. You know, you think like, oh, I'll just pound up some mustard and pour some vinegar in it and call it good, and mm -hmm. and it's okay, but eh, it's never back. like no, it's never what I want it to be. I know. And then, of course, if, if I make these wonderful potatoes with the gooey, cheesy sauce, then the next day, if there's potatoes left over, I can cut up my little chunks of ham. And th that's my one of my favorite dishes in the whole wide world. I hope I eat a bunch of that before I die. And peas, I yes, peas are, are my favorites too. Do you, do you grow peas? 
I can't. It's too cold up by my estate. So, oh. and when I was a little girl, my grandma grew peas. Yeah, yeah. We loved them. Everybody's I, everybody's grandma who grew things grew yeah. peas. Maybe someday I'll be a grandma that can grow peas. <laughs> now that I have two grandbabies, you know, they're gonna want peas. I'm sure of it with their ham. Definitely. Yo, you have a new one, don't you? I do. I have a little girl. Her name is Ryan Marie. She was born Tuesday. <laughs> Yay, mom and dad, Roble. Well, congratulations, Terry. Thanks. And I'm sure they'll be good eaters. <laughs> well, they'll be well-fed anyway. <laughs> Grandma will try. <laughs> well, thanks for stopping in today to talk to me about ham. Thank you. All right, Terry. And thanks to Skip, who is probably not listening anymore, but he's off in Hungary somewhere. Making chowing. us hungry. Yes, making us very hungry. My name is Jeff Lockwood. This has been Check the Pantry, and we will see you next week. Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. Additional recording took place at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, call 907-235-4226 or email info at station12.com. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2, by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Eben. This is the first episode of the spring 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.